Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkan, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gopal Gupta, who is Associate Professor at the University of Evansville, and he's also the editor of the Journal of Hindu Christian Studies. Gopal, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Raj. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you, particularly as we're speaking on your uh, brand new book, called Maya and the Bhagavata Purana. Now, I've heard of the Puranas. <laughs> I've heard of the Puranas. These are these, these interesting texts. Um, but uh, it's brand new. Do you want to tell us exactly how new it is? Well, it was actually released just today by Oxford University Press. Um, if you go to the website, you'll see December 22nd. So somehow the stars aligned and we're having this uh, interview and podcast today. Thank you, Raj. You know, I do what I can, but this one I didn't arrange. because <laughs> I had emailed Gopal a few months back, and uh, sometimes, as you well know, authors will, will interview before the book comes out, and he opted to wait until the book came out, and then we couldn't find a suitable date for a number of reasons, and the stars have aligned, as they say, for us to speak about your fascinating publication on the day uh, of its birth into the world. But before its birth, there was no doubt a gestation, a gestation and the conception. So why don't you tell us about the process whereby this book was conceived and, and, and nurtured? It's interesting you mentioned that metaphor, because when I was in grad school uh, at Oxford University, um, many people told me that writing your dissertation and your first book is very much like having your first child. And I agree, Uh, the process of writing this book took 10 years, exactly 10 years. I started working on it intensively in 2010 as a graduate student at Oxford University. I graduated in 2014, and now in 2020, it's been actually released. People used to tell me that it takes 10 years to write a book. I was like, really, 10 years? But yes, indeed, 10 years, the entire process of writing it and then finding a publisher and then you know revising it and re-revising it and then publishing it. So it all began with uh, an interest, a deep interest uh, that I had in understanding the nature of the world as it is conceived by these ancient texts. Um, I you know there's so many topics I could work on, but uh, I wanted to understand you know you know how is the world understood? What is the nature of matter, the nature of nature uh, in these ancient texts and particularly the Sanskrit texts? And that led me to the Bhagavad Purana and that led me to writing this book on Maya and the Bhagavad Purana. So a 10-year gestation, that's a Mahabharata-esque <laughs> <laughs> pregnancy, but not atypical, uh, I think, for, for most books. And... Uh, 
the thing about the dissertation that's apt that no one tells you going in is the labor pains. You will <laughs> experience labor to pop that thing out so one way or another. Um, so uh, yes. why why the Bhagavata Purana? This is a text that uh, has held interest for you. And maybe tell us a bit about looking at a narrative text uh, through the lens of this philosophical concept. Mm. Well, why the Bhagavata Purana? To answer that question, I particularly actually studied this text because um, it really should not be, it should not be a surprise to scholars and students of Hinduism why we should study the Bhagavad Purana. Uh, because if we actually look at the, you know, the, uh, the living religions of India, we find that the Bhagavata ranks along with the Mahabharata and the Ramayana in terms of the influence that it's had. It's inspired architecture, rich, ritual recitations, dance, drama, more recently film. Um, Edwin Bryant in his you know, translation of the 10th book of the Bhagavata Purana, he says that second to the Ramayana, the Bhagavata Purana has probably, uh, no other text has had more influence than the Bhagavata Purana on all aspects of Hindu culture, like I mentioned, dance, drama, music, architecture. It's, uh, it's a work of over 14,000 Sanskrit verses. Most Puranas just have one or two commentaries, if that. Most Puranas don't have any commentaries and some of the famous ones have one or two. But the Bhagavad Purana alone has 81 commentaries. And these are the extant commentaries that we have. There's so many more that are probably lost to antiquity, um, so many commentaries. A, a book that has 81 commentaries has obviously had a powerful influence in the culture and uh, philosophical field of Hindu thought. So certainly the Bhagavata is, is extraordinarily popular among Puranas without question. Uh, my last work was looking a little bit at the Markandeya Purana which, you know, uh, there's much to be written on the Markandeya Purana yet. Yes. Um, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the structure of the book, the way you've ordered the chapters? So, um, maybe just as a slight lead up to that point, why Maya in the Bhagavad Purana? The reason why I, I focused on the Bhagavad Purana in the context of Maya is that when I actually came to study this concept of Maya, I, I looked at it starting the Vedas and into the Upanishads, the Vedanta Sutra, and then uh, the Puranas, and the epics and the Mahabharata. I found that unlike the common perception of the concept of Maya, Maya is really not that central. It is clearly not a central concept in the Upanishads. The commentators make it into a central idea. But in all the Upanishadic literature, it appears like 14 times, just 14 instances of it. And even that primarily in the later Upanishads, like the Shrivastava Upanishad. We find an explosion of the term of uh, uh, Maya in the Puranas. The first time in the history of you know, Indian texts where we really find this, this term explodes as a concept and is developed is not in the epics, it's not in the Upanishads. In the Vedas, to some degree, but as a philosophical concept, it explodes in the Puranas, and particularly the Bhagavata. 
So the first chapter of my book, this is what I do. I look at the history of the development of the term Maya uh, throughout all of these various texts and um, starting from the Vedas, the, the epics, the Upanishads, uh, the Vedanta Sutra, and in this way, um, look at the development of this term, Maya. Then in the second chapter, I look at uh, Maya as a whole in the Bhagavad Purana itself. Uh, how is that term uh, in general? What are the ways in which it's used? And that's a, another key point is that there's not one use or one usage of the term Maya in the Bhagavad Purana. Um, and then I focus on the first usage of Maya in the Bhagavata, and that is as the world. So Maya as the world, which is a very central, very crucial topic for not just philosophy, but also sociology, political science, um, psychology. Because if the world is Maya and we interpret Maya to be illusion, then is the world an illusion? So I really thought that this was an important you know, topic to discuss. What is the nature of the world and Maya in the Bhagavad Purana? Then I looked at Maya in the context of the human condition. So it's elusive and delusive effects, you know, possibly the most famous usage of Maya uh, that you find in general, Maya as this sort of negative, elusive, dreamlike state. Then in the next chapter, I look at something that's very unique to the Bhagavad Purana and and an aspect of Maya that has not been studied. And that is Maya's positive role, the powerful role that it has in the Bhagavata as an agency or power for, for uh, spiritual experience, for uh, yoga, for union. And then I look at um, uh, Maya in the context of women. So the you know trope that Maya, uh, is our women and you know women are Maya, and then um, I look at Maya in terms in the context of the problem of evil, problem of suffering. So in the Bhagavata, if this is creative energy, if this is the power of God, why is this energy so elusive and cause of such suffering? And finally, I look at narratives in the Bhagavata Purana on freedom from Maya. So if Maya is this chain that binds us to this world. How do we get free? How do we break the bonds of Maya? And how does the Bhagavata see moksha or liberation from the world of Maya? So this is the basic uh, breakdown, you know, eight chapters plus the conclusion. That's a fascinating read. Um, I'm slightly biased towards uh, narrative and philosophical concepts, nevertheless. <laughs> There's much there. Uh, uh, I had sort of a note in the back of my brain to to write an article called Maya in the, in, in, in the Devi Mahatmya at some point. <laughs> um, would you say then, could you tell us a bit about the extent to which Maya in the, in the Bhagavata Purana is not necessarily this pejorative, uh, negative, illusory, entrapping uh, uh, um, uh, um, entity that needs to be overcome, but can you you touched on it just now, but can you tell us a bit more about the the, the positive or beneficial, useful um, uh, elements or aspects of Maya in the Bhagavad Purana? Well, um, uh, you know this is Vedanta philosophy, as you mentioned, has generally seen Maya as something that is to be avoided, 
something to be transcended and something that is very elusive. And this is the very point that you brought up. Uh, you, you touched at the heart of the book uh, that I found very surprising when I started reading the Bhagavata, that it really isn't like that because, and the reason is actually um, grounded in, in the philosophical history of Indian thought, because Vedanta has now become the most dominant philosophical discourse in India and abroad and in, in academics. But historically speaking, from the time of the Bhagavad Purana, Vedanta may not have been that popular as it is today. And in fact, many notable scholars have pointed out that the dominant philosophical system in the history of Sanskrit texts, the most common one that you find is Sankhya. You find Sankhya all the way back to the Upanishads. You find it in the Mahabharat, all over the place, in the epics. You find it in the Puranas. You find it in the Bhagavad Gita. The Sankhya philosophy was like the bread and butter philosophy of these texts. And how does Sankhya see this world? How does it see Prakriti? Sankhya sees Prakriti as mother. It, it, it does have a negative, you could say, a role to some degree. Like all mothers chastise their, their naughty kids. And we are certainly uh, the, the children of Prakriti uh, in these Puranic narratives. But overall, a mother is a loving, kind entity with good intentions for the children. So if, if the Bhagavata is drawing from the Sankhya, um, the Sankhya philosophical discourse, then it sees Prakriti as a divine mother. And in, on so many occasions in the Bhagavata, throughout the Bhagavata, you see this. There are prayers to Prakriti in the Bhagavata Purana. You know, devotees praying, glorifying Maya and Prakriti. And now, uh, what's, what makes the Bhagavata such a marvelous text is that the Bhagavata is one text that brings together many different philosophical strains and systems of thought into one book. So it tries to synthesize Vedanta and Sankhya. And many scholars have noted this. Uh, you know, basically all uh, you know, uh, scholars in recent times that I've read have noted how the Bhagavata is a, a book that synthesizes many different philosophical systems. You find by Sheshika, philosophy in their Sankhya and Vedanta, uh, Mimansa, but particularly it synthesizes Vedanta and Sankhya. So when it brought Vedanta and Sankhya together, it identified the concepts of Maya and Prakriti. It equated them. It said Prakriti is Maya and Maya is Prakriti. And therefore, since Prakriti is divine mother, Maya being the energy of God is also a divine mother. And to be very explicit, the Bhagavata gives it a particular role. It personifies it. And it says that Maya is Yoga Maya, which is the younger sister of Krishna. And being a Vaishnava text and being a Krishna-based text, Krishna is, you know, Krishna is God in the Bhagavata Purana. And his sister is his energy, Yoga Maya, that takes the form of Yoga Maya and is, is taking the role of mother, is trying to, you know, uh, through this process of karma and the, uh, and the sufferings of this world, dukkha is, is trying to rectify the, uh, the jivas of the world. So it, it, it has a very distinct worldview that, that cannot be ignored. There are certainly exceptions to that worldview. There are certainly, you could say, different, uh, different 
narratives in the Bhagavata that complicate this issue. But overall, Maya is seen as a positive force. And one of Maya's roles is to be um, is to provide a school of hard knocks. And and but the overall intention of Maya is one of Prakriti, which is one of a compassionate one. So Maya takes on a pedagogical or instructive hue rather than inclusive hue for its own sake. Um, what so fascinates me is that um, the Devi Mahatmya is, is uh, in my view, an important text for a number of reasons, not least of which is the first time we see in sort of Sanskrit Hindudam, <laughs> we, see, we see a conscious crafting of, a, of a, this theological vision of the divine that's feminine where uh, maya uh, equals prakriti equals shakti which is beyond even the purusha of sankhya right you have this this vision this 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 re-rendering of maya as you know this is the garb of the devi mm-hmm. right uh, which who, who deludes and, and liberates like and so i see that I see it's, 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 it's easy and perhaps it's my own bias. So please correct me mm-hmm. if you think, Mah, but I, I sort of see the Bhagavad Purana as leveraging that, or at least a flowering of that crystallization we see in the Devi Mahatmya. Yes, and um, I would in fact argue perhaps the other way around that the Devi Bhagavata and the Devi Mahatmya are taking narratives that you find um, uh, in the uh, in the Vaishnava Puranas, uh, one of them being the Bhagavata, and um, you could say transforming them uh, for the, uh, you could say, in the discourse of, of Devi. So I noted this in my book and in many places that how the uh, Devi Bhagavata, um, the, uh, it takes certain narratives of the Bhagavata, like for example, the narrative of the Markandeya Purana, and perhaps not directly from the from the Bhagavata, but you find earlier versions of this narrative, and um, and it, it it takes the narrative of Markandeya and it uh, transforms it. it. It changes the narrative, where now Markandeya and Krishna are no longer just the two players in that narrative, but the final you know the final conclusion of that narrative is that you know. Uh, Markandeya sees Krishna in the arms of Devi and uh, she's cradling Krishna in her arms and therefore Maya is a source of Vishnu or Krishna. So uh, because she's the mother, the divine mother, and she gives birth in some ways to Krishna and Vishnu. Uh, in earlier versions of the, of, the, of the narrative, you don't find this. Um, you know, these, these narratives have their different versions and so you don't find it like that, presented in that way in the Bhagavata, you find it the other way around. You Consistently, the Bhagavata says that how yoga maya or maya is the shakti of Bhagavan, and that Bhagavan is Vishnu or Krishna. So, and this is how the traditions, you could say, negotiate the role of shakti. Naturally, the shakta traditions see shakti as a source of Vishnu and Krishna, and the Vaishnava and even Shaiva traditions, they see shakti as the power of Vishnu or Shiva. So who comes first? That's uh, that's a matter of you know, debate. And uh, for those of you listening uh, who aren't scholars of Hinduism, uh, dating is extraordinarily problematic. And I want to preface that before I ask the next question. 
Um, when approximately would you date the Bhagavad Purana? Um, academics today uh, date it anywhere from 4th century CE to 4th century um, BCE. So um, it's uh, the, you could say the common academic uh, conclusion is that it's a text that develops over time. There's no one specific date when it, you know, when the Bhagavata takes birth, but there are, you know, references of it. There are inscriptions of it dating back to the fourth century CE, which means that in some form or the other, maybe not in the full 14,000 verses, the Bhagavata existed starting fourth century CE. Um, and, you know, various scholars have worked on this far more in depth than I have. That was not so much my concern in my own work. The dating of the text was not my major concern, but, um, you know, it's, it's reasonable to say that, that it, uh, you know, it, it started in a smaller form and, you know, developed over time. Of course, tradition would say that it's, you know, 5,000 years old. Um, that's the traditional viewpoint. So you have the traditional dating and you have the it's fascinating. And of course, you have a kindred spirit in one who prefers the world within the text over the world behind it, because the one we have clear purview of, for the most part, and the other is so opaque. <laughs> and so um, uh, courageous and or foolish are they who <laughs> attempt to date <laughs> texts of Indian origin. Um uh, or some combination, but no, it's 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 narrative, right? Like the, the, the this is a work where you're looking at the, the narrative and you're 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 analyzing plot characterization, right? My favorite metaphor is that you know when you're thirsty, you want something liquid, and you don't want a, a coconut, but a coconut once cracked, it's the most hydrating, delicious sort exactly. of exactly. And so this 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 impulse to crack the coconut of narrative and and see. Know, see what emerges. Um, is that um, are you comfortable with narrative? Will you be continuing to study narrative? Can you tell us a bit about that process? Like you, I I think that was the most enjoyable part for me in, in working on this book. I love working with narratives. I especially when coming to ancient Sanskrit texts, um, working with civilizations, with cultures that you know, that we, during the present time, don't have direct access to. I love working with narratives because how much, how much can you unpack from short phrases, short philosophical, you know, discussions? The spirit of what they felt, the spirit of what they believed in, the spirit of their philosophical thought is revealed in the narratives. Otherwise, I mean, um, there are so many, you know, sections in the Bhagavata that um, that are from different strains of philosophical thought, as I mentioned, and one could not make any conclusion as to what the Bhagavata itself, you know, wants to communicate simply by analyzing specific verses, because one will find different verses saying different things. But when we look at the text as a whole, when we look at the narratives we find that, no, there is a, you could say, a Vision. genre of literature here. There is a feeling that is expressed through these narratives that is undeniably, um, you know, clear in that they did have certain ideas that they were 
very much in tune with, with exceptions. But you can draw conclusions. You can draw um, a, a you can develop on that discussion if you look at the narratives rather than just the philosophical discussions. And there's such that um, 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 familiarity is required upon spending time with the narrative and becoming familiar, just like with a person. You internalize so much "quote unquote" data about the person, and uh, you know uh, when you spend time, especially daily, for some time in the world of a text, uh, there is a zeitgeist, there, uh, there is an ethos, uh, there is an imaginaire, and and then it's up to the conscious mind to latch on to what can be demonstrated and articulated. But 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 the, the first step for me is to become acquainted with the text. Else, the conscious mind could easily justify something. Uh, and this happens in my view all too often, uh, mm -hmm. at least historically in, in, in the study of Sanskrit narrative, the conscious mind can justify something that may sound cogent as an argument, but go against the entire fabric of the text. Mm. It, at least as it seems to yes. me. Yes, indeed. And um, that was part of the, you could say, the, the, the what took the bulk of the time in writing this book is uh, carefully studying all the narratives in the Bhagavata, and then not just studying them in the Bhagavata, but also looking at earlier versions of those narratives and how that narrative, uh, why is it significant? Why is it present in the Bhagavata? And what is that narrative used in the service of in the text? So, um, so for example, I can, I can you know, point at the Rasa Lila narrative in the Bhagavata. Rasalila is one of the most famous parts of the Bhagavata. And um, when studying that narrative very carefully, uh, what is not apparent in the first reading is that the Rasalila is situated in the framework of yoga. So the, the um, successive stages of the gopis' um, devotion towards Krishna uh, their states of meditation, their emotions, actually follow the eightfold yoga practice as we find in the Yoga Sutras. The, they are, um, the, the language is also enmeshed in the language of the Yoga Sutras um, and, and yoga in general, maybe not specifically the Yoga Sutras, but even you know, the yoga that you find in other uh, texts. And um, so much of it is... Uh, is enmeshed in the, in the practice of yoga. So one can see that there is, you know, there is a uh, connection here between the Rasa Lila, Bhakti, and yoga in the Bhagavad Purana, where the Bhagavad is trying to show, is, is trying to, you know, uh, being part of a Bhakti movement and being a Bhakti text, the Bhagavad is trying to situate itself in discourses of yoga and show that Bhakti can be a form of yoga. Another example is how the Bhagavata starts as a reflection on the Mahabharata. And you know, it starts with the narrative of Draupadi and Ashvatthama and the five Pandavas, and it's reflecting on the horrors of the Mahabharata battle. And therefore, so much of the Bhagavata draws from the Mahabharata. And at the very end, in the 11th book, you have the Uddhava Gita, which is a transformation, you know, just a, a different rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. So, the, the Bhagavata is conscientiously at so many points aligning itself with the Mahabharata and reflecting on the Mahabharata and, you know, uh, 
continue with that tradition. So interesting, the um, uh, uh, the Markan they put on also starts off with um, 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 Jaimini, a student of Yasa, <laughs> mm-hmm. going to Markandeya Mahamuni himself and saying, you know, I've studied the Mahabharata and I just can't make sense of these four questions. Can you help me answer these four questions? <laughs> and one, of course, is about the polyandry of Draupadi, but <laughs> this is the, this is how the, uh, it's so you can see the stitching. It's so clear that the, that, that the Puranas are a continuation and an embellishment of the epic tradition folding in. Uh, these yes. are the tissues of what we call Hinduism, right? These are e- ecosystems, right? There's so much in there. And that's why it's hazardous to try and study the Puranas. And, and I have a little bit of sympathy for earlier generations of, 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 of or, uh, colonial scholars who dismiss them as like haphazard patchwork nonsense. Um, Clearly, they're much more than that, but I can I can almost sympathize <laughs> with the impulse that they're unwieldy, but they're doing so much. Just as Hinduism exactly. is not a thing, it's an ecosystem. So too the Puranas. They are they are the reflection of what we call Hinduism. They're they're folding in all the strands of the Hindu tapestry, and that's why they're the most current. Absolutely, Raj. I think you've put it in such nice words, uh, so beautifully that. Um, you know, the Puranas are a reflection of the very uh, feeling and fabric of Hinduism. And, and it was very difficult, actually, to study the Bhagavata. It took me years to just read it and reread it. And um, just because the, the content is so diverse, it's, it is um, bringing in so many things. However, the reason why it's so rewarding is that it is reflecting the way that people even to this day, uh, you know, Hindu practitioners think of their faith. You know, it's all, when you talk to practitioners today, you know, it's all, it also, you know, combines somehow and it's all one, but it's still different. And, and um, the Puranas reflect that, you could say that um, they're very comfortable. What I find so amazing is that they're so comfortable with the diversity and they don't find the need to try to resolve it. At the same time, at the same time, there are specific uh, messages and uh, motivations that the writers have that they want to communicate. Like, for example, the Bhagavata also is very much a, you know, a, a, a uh, it speaks in favor of the lower castes and um, relatively speaking to other texts, uh, you know, in favor of women and um, and you know, so most of the heroes of the Bhagavata, the most of the greatest saints and sages of the Bhagavata are not the typical orthodox brahmanas, but they are people like Narada who are born in Shudra or outcast families, maidservants. Uh, those become the greatest sages of the, uh, of the Bhagavata and they give their stories. So you see that it is a reflection also on Hindu culture and Hindu society. And there is a, an effort to advance, you could say, the, the project, the plan of bhakti in favor of jnana and, and uh, you know, other more orthodox uh, practices and systems to make it more inclusive to all castes and uh, people of that civilization. Well, this is the, this is the real power of narrative, you know, this penchant for 
polyphony, for paradox, right? This is this is where you reflect the the, the, the messiness of life. You know, you, you can't have a sutra of this is how you live and this is what it is and this is what the divine is and this is what your dharma is. So so narrative, it, it's, it, it folds in the these different voices uh, somewhat antithetically at times, but nevertheless, there's a penchant for uh, ideology, for a message, for a theme. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's on the one hand, um, trying to school you when you least expect it and, and, and advance a platform or polemic or theme. And on the other hand, it's going to try to fold in various voices. And mm-hmm. um, uh, as I say, I'm slightly biased. I do love all of my interviewees and all of their books <laughs> without question. But clearly... Um, it, it happens that both uh, your methodology to a large extent and your object of study um, happens to be similar to my own. So forgive the outpourings. No. Uh, that's so, uh, I'm so uh, uh, happy and uh, you know, excited about this because um, certainly there's things then we can work on uh, together. That is possible, like Maya in the, in the Devi Mahatmya. So, um, your subtitle, Human Suffering in the Divine Play. What do you, what does your research show about human suffering or at least indicate observations thereof? Um, I uh, particularly was very interested in this topic because, you know, uh, it's, it's a really practical question. It's, it's a question that is not just in philosophical discourse, but it's also something that practitioners of every religious tradition reflect upon. And so, you know, it shows the relevance of the study of Maya. Well, the study of Maya sheds some light on the problem of suffering, or more commonly known as a problem of evil. And this is why the study of Maya is relevant to uh, contemporary discourse, even outside uh, uh, of Indian traditions. So uh, what does Maya say about human suffering? Uh, what does the Bhagavata say about human suffering? I feel it's something very notable because discussions on human suffering in Indian religions have largely surround, uh, revolved around the idea of karma. Okay, if you're going to talk about human suffering in Hinduism, you, you have to talk about karma and that's where it starts and that's where it ends. But here in Bhagavata, we find, uh, we find a discourse that goes beyond karma, that realizes, that sort of addresses the limitations of karma and says that the problem is larger, the problem is bigger. Um, and the response to suffering has to be deeper. So what is that? Well, uh, there's a conversation between Bhishma and Yudhishthira after the Kurukshetra battle that takes place in the Mahabharata, and then you find it continued in the Bhagavata on the problem of suffering. In this discussion, Yudhishthira has come to Bhishma and has expressed that he feels horrible about this battle. He feels devastated that so many people died as a result of this battle and as a result of trying to put him on the, um, on the throne. And furthermore, what complicates the issue for both Bhishma and Yudhishthira is that all the while, all of this has happened and Yudhishthira is, is like righteousness personified. From the very beginning, he, he has good intentions. He doesn't want to fight. He's tried every method he can on the planet to try to make his cousin brother, Duryodhana, 
like him, you know, establish a friendship with him. So he's clearly not looking for violence. He's clearly not a violent or evil person. He's one of the kindest people alive on the planet, yet he keeps being pushed into situations of conflict and violence that he does not like. And why is this the case? So Bhishma reflects on this question. And he says, the first thing that he says, that well, in your case, Yudhishthira, the answer cannot be karma. In your case, you could not be suffering due to your past karma. Because I'm sorry, you're just too good. And this is the, you could say, the Bhagavatam version of the problem of Job uh, that you find uh, you know, in the Bible. And he says, no, karma is not a response. So he says, well, let's look at other causes or possible causes for the problem of, of evil, for, for the cause of your suffering. And then he switches to time. He says, perhaps kala or time, just the very nature of this world is the cause of your suffering. And then he says, well, no, that also can be the cause because um, you, know, you have been uh, very devoted and you are a spiritually you know, evolved person and time does not affect the sages. And then he goes on to, uh, to daiva, to destiny. He says, perhaps it's destiny. It's just destiny due to why you are suffering in this world. But then what is destiny? And that's a huge topic. And the commentators on those texts really unpack this and they say, well, destiny is still not satisfying because destiny either refers to your past karma or it refers to the will of God. And being a, you know, a monotheistic text, uh, the Bhagavata does believe in a God and the will of God. And so clearly destiny just isn't a force in of itself. And so then finally Bhishma says that I think the, really the only cause for your suffering could be the plan of God. That there is some unknown plan that is behind all of this and it's going to unfold. It has unfolded and it's going to unfold. And there is a good purpose. There's a divine purpose behind this. So he actually mentions you know, in this discussion how, how this plan is unknowable, although he feels that the plan of God is always perfect. Uh, providing, you could say, a very interesting, uh, very different uh, outlook to, to suffering that goes deeper and says, well, karma is not in play in all forms of suffering in this world. There might be other forces, other purposes involved in the suffering, especially a righteous people. What a brilliant response. And I'm glad that you brought in some of the narrative because one of my questions next was going to be, you know, share some of the narratives or, or perhaps I can ask this question. Um, what parts of the book did you most enjoy writing and or passages that you most enjoy interpreting? I particularly enjoyed um, writing, which is, uh, what one? The, uh, just looking up here, I forget the chapter number. It's uh, Maya's uh, in the absolute realm, Maya's role in the absolute realm, that's chapter five. Um, Maya as Yoga Maya. I particularly enjoyed writing that chapter just because um, in this context, Maya is closely connected to the discussion of Leela in the Bhagavad And Leela, as you know, it's, it's a concept that is very unique to Hinduism. A God that plays, a God that 
you know, acts just for the sake of pleasure and playing is something you don't find in, you know, discussed much in the world, in the religions of the world. So halila is a concept that is, you know, needs a lot of unpacking. And one of the aspects of lila is the thing that makes lila effective or powerful is that the participants in lila forget who they actually are and they lose themselves in the drama. Uh, Lila is really the best drama, so much so that the actors become completely absorbed in the roles that they play. And that's what makes Lila possible. And not only do the devotees of Krishna forget their real identities, but the Bhagavata says that Krishna himself in the flow of Lila forgets that he is God. So he actually, you know, loses um, his, his remembrance, his recognition of his divine position. And in order for that to happen, something has to make it happen. And that is the specific role of Maya or Yoga Maya. Where Maya is something in the positive context that not only, uh, you could say, influences the devotees, but it also influences God. So it describes that Krishna uh, Upashita, these are the words that are mentioned there. He takes recourse or resorts or t- takes shelter of Maya in the context of his Lila. So here we have a concept where God is so powerful that God is powerful in- enough to disempower himself. God is powerful enough to forget himself by the power of his own mind. And I think that's something that's just very cool. It's very neat. That's uh, definitely cool, without question. Um, I had meant to mention it earlier, but perhaps now is a more opportune moment. Um, so in the Devi Mahatmya, there are um, 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 four stupis, four hymns to the goddess that are placed in the mouth of various gods. Um, the, 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 it is a pattern, a hymn of invocation, one of thanksgiving, one of invocation, one of thanksgiving. So the second hymn of invocation, I believe it's called the Iparajita Stuti, it is the most famous uh, Ya Devi uh, hymn to the goddess, Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu, to that goddess who resides in all beings in the form of X, Y, Z, P, Q, and there are a number of attributes of, of Ma Devi. The first one is Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu Vishnu Mayeti Shabdida Namastasya 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 Vishnu Maya, like the, the first one. Yes of all the attributes, perhaps the one that enables her to live in all beings as thirst, as hunger, as modesty, as intelligence, as confusion, is the fact that in this text, she is Vishnu Maya. She is the Maya Vishnu. And in this text, it's easy to see why Vishnu Maya would have its own agency, because of course, it's part of, it's part of the Shakti that is the supreme, uh, the Mahadevi. But uh, uh, it was reminiscent. What you're saying is reminiscent of that of the way in which that term has worked, that concept has worked in the Devi Mahatmya. Yes, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> it's, uh, Maya definitely in the Bhagavata also has agency. Uh, she's personified as Yoga Maya, as Subhadra, as, um, uh, you know, in so many different roles and forms. Um, and uh, there's this interplay, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, sh- there's the discussion of Shakti and Shaktiman, how the power is non-different than the powerful, 
yet it is also different. And uh, you know, the, the, the philosophical viewpoint of the Bhagavata is one of Bheda Bheda, of oneness and difference. So Shakti is one with Bhagavan, yet she's also different. And Shakti is different, yet also one. And so the Bhagavata is not a dualist text, nor is it a monistic text. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, it uh, adheres to this idea of oneness and difference. So the Shakti is one with God, yet also different. But, you know, it, it, on many occasions, it, it, it emphasizes the fact how this Shakti is employed by Bhagavan for his Leela. And the moment that he wants to remember his his uh, power, like for example, in Krishna Leela, when in the middle of the Rasa Leela or in the middle of various Leelas, he has to uh, fight with some uh, Asuras who come and attack him, then, then Krishna is immediately you know, uh, remembers who he is and comes out of that state of forgetfulness. And so in that case, it is not Maya who's still overpowering him, but that Maya is something that Krishna employs for the purpose of his own need. And in that way, it's, a, it's an energy that's very close to him and is utilized by him, but um, is fully under his control. Fascinating. Is there anything else about the book you hoped we would touch on? Um, per- personally, I think one of the contributions of this book is, in addition to its study of Maya, is its study of the Bhagavata itself. And the, um, you could say the, the, the philosophical discussion that is revealed, the, uh, the discourse on the nature of the self, the God, uh, nature of the self, God, and the world that is revealed through the discussions. And there's been a common perception uh, of the Bhagavata that the Bhagavata um, is you know is either a text that does not have any um, any clear philosophical viewpoint, or it's a text that's grounded in non-dualism, in in Advaita, in the thought of, of monism and Advaita. And um, through this study, you know, uh, I show that how the Bhagavata is um, is you could say. Uh, negotiating all these different ideas, all these different concepts, yet it also does have a very um, clear philosophical thought. And uh, particularly, for example, in the narrative of Uddhava, where that's been quoted very often, how at the end Uddhava goes to the, the gopis and gives them knowledge of Brahman and tells them, you know, that the ultimate reality is Brahman and it's, you know, the ultimate uh, goal is is realizing Brahman. After that, while you know, much of the scholarship has noted that, but in the narrative itself, after that, Uddhava is the one who becomes influenced and overtaken by the gopis of Vrindavan. And Uddhava uh, then desires to, or becomes a follower of the gopis and realizes that his, that his teaching of Brahman has, has had very little effect on the gopis. His teaching of, you know, Advaitic thought of, of you know, Brahman and its nature has had very little effect on the gopis and how their devotion, their bhakti for Krishna is um, overpowers their 
you know, philosophical reasoning. So, um, so the Bhagavata is presenting, you could say, a, a, uh, a very theistic, a very devotional viewpoint that I think has been missed in scholarship. It has not been you know, highlighted enough in scholarship. And a fair reading of the text itself, if we allow the text to speak for itself, rather than through later schools of thought, reveals the distinctive contribution uh, to theism and to uh, the devotional traditions and texts of India that the Bhagavata has made and that perhaps has not been studied in uh, academia. Fantastic and fascinating. And this, we're back to this important point, um, this uh, methodological point of prioritizing and becoming familiar with the world within a text. And obviously it exists in a context. Uh, obviously we are not operating in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously we, uh, we have our own biases and predilections. But nevertheless, there is a world within the text with which one can become acquainted mm. if one is able to exert the time and attention. Mm-hmm. Right, to spend the time and attention. So uh, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'll sign off. Um, you'll stay on for a moment, if you will. Um, we've been speaking today with Dr. Gopal Gupta on um, a brand new OUP publication, a Birth into the World Today on the 22nd of December, uh, 2020. Uh, a publication called Maya in the Bhagavata Purana, Human Suffering and Divine Play. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Raj. I really enjoyed our conversation and my time with you. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for featuring my book. As did I. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, until next time, for those of you out there, stay safe, stay sane. Uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the power of Maya.